Hello, America, and all of our listeners all over the world. You're listening to yet another exciting edition of Let's Weekend. I'm your host, Brandon Perkins. Joining me, as always, is Chris Sologi. Say hi to the good people, Chris. Hello. Yeah. Patrick Mifflin will be with us uh, momentarily. He's currently dealing with a, a online seller that he's getting stuff from. Uh, but he'll be here when he's ready. Anyway. In the meantime, uh, this episode is going to be for January 14th, 2023. Um, and yeah, uh, well, we have some things to discuss this this uh, this episode. Um, there's a whole bunch of shit happened this week. Uh, among other things, um, we lost one of the great rock and roll legends this week. Um, one of the greatest guitarists that ever lived. One of the most influential Um and you may not have heard of his name, but he is one of those guys that's been like just a massive influence um, on so many people. Uh, also, um, so you remember that thing that happened in January 6th a couple of years ago? Yeah. Uh, well, another former president supporters attempted to do something similar this week um, and failed miserably. And on top of all of that, they're also getting the hammer down on them in ways that honestly kind of makes me, I don't know, envious, I guess. Um, we'll get to it. Um, also, uh, Elon Musk is a loser. That's nobody's, that's nobody's surprise. Um, there's a whole bunch of shit going down with Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro. We'll try that. Um, and uh, one of the West Coast's most beloved fast food chains is actually starting to move west. I mean, east. And, um, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. We'll explain why. But before we do all that, as always, we need to talk a little bit about what it is we've been up to this week. So, uh, as always, we start with Chris. Chris, what have you been doing this week? Freezing. Yeah. I think we hit... Uh... We went under freezing today mm-hmm. uh, for a good chunk. I think we maybe hit a high of like 32 here. So, mm. you know, doing good on that front. Uh, I realized it was getting really cold when uh, my air conditioner was telling me it was 40 degrees in here. 48 eight degrees, I think. Yeah. I was like, oh, I should do something about this. I'd been dealing with other stuff going on. Hadn't even mm. thought about uh, the temperature. Yeah, it's, we'd high of 28 Mm-hmm. Here, uh, so that's fun. I uh, had some snow, but nothing amazing. It's just like enough to stick to things for mm-hmm. a little bit. Enough that I had like a uh, a decent amount to wipe off mm-hmm. my windshield when I got to yeah. my car to go to work. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuff. Uh, well, enough to make me think my doors were frozen shut. Uh, yeah, to like pry them open with my fingers before I got in. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing, but yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's been fine around here. I've mm. uh, been watching some stuff. Uh, watched Willow for the first uh-huh. time. The movie? Yeah. Oh, all right. So I was like, I'll watch the show, but I should probably watch the movie first, or else none of the rest of this will make any sense. Yeah. Uh, so I watched that, and that was pretty good. It wasn't amazing or anything, but yeah, uh, it was pretty neat, mm. uh, especially to kind of make this fantasy movie that doesn't go into directly into the tropes that like the Lord of the Rings does. Yeah. It's built all around. So, uh, you know, 
They have the the race of the little people, the Nelwyn, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not like uh, you know turned to dwarfs. And even in the Lord of the Rings, uh, the way the actors are done, uh, you know, it wasn't an actual small person. Yeah, it was just they played a lot with perspective to make everybody look different sizes. Yeah, even though that's uh, not really how it should be done. But yeah. here they hired a ton of little uh, people to be the actors in this uh, movie. And that's a, that's a cool thing for the 80s, yep. especially. Uh, where they would be more of a, a butt of jokes if in most other movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's a pretty decent fantasy movie. The, the story is kind of all nonsense. And it took me a while to realize that was Val Kilmer. Mm-hmm. Was the, the dude. I was like, that guy looks familiar. Yeah. Uh, but it's like how is Val Kilmer in this movie? But I guess he was probably a bigger star after this. Well, uh, yeah. Cause he was in, uh, you know, top gun. So yeah, well, I, I know him because he was Batman for a bit. Yeah. Uh, and that was seemed like the peak of his stardom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then sharply dropped after that. Not really for any reason, really mm-hmm. just, he wasn't as big of a star. Cause yeah. those, flow. those Batman movies weren't necessarily the best around yeah uh so yeah but uh hey pat's here now so. yeah pat's here hey, yeah, pat. it was an adventure um so i was late originally because a doordash was coming and two i had a facebook marketplace seller coming with a a new bookcase yeah um turned out he got stuck in the in the snow out in the parking lot so it took about 20 minutes to extricate his truck uh, funny. So, yeah, that was that was enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have a nice new bookcase now for uh, my streamlined gaming library, and mm. that is very welcome news. Um, as you probably saw in the in the studio chat, my Switch library has increased much further over the past yeah. week. Well, we got you in the show notes, so we'll get to you in a little oh, bit. Well, I thought that was what we were okay. Yeah, uh, Chris isn't done yet. <laughs> okay, we just started. But yeah, my bad. That's fine. Uh, but yeah, I started watching the show, which uh, is pretty nice uh, yeah. for the most part. Uh, it has the same kind of way that they end episodes as all the MCU shows. Yeah, uh, which they have some big line or joke or whatever, and then they go smash cut to the the credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one, the last episode I watched ended with a uh, cover of Enter Sandman. That I was like, oh God, they're actually doing this in this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of weird thing. They had a few like real songs in the the show mm-hmm. here and there. But yeah, the show's kind of like, uh, you know, many years later, uh, What's Her Face is the queen of. Uh, I forget what the kingdom is. Um, mm. uh, but the one they were trying to take the the baby to. And she has grown up. She's a teenager at mm-hmm. this point, I think. Um, but yeah, features a lot of the the offspring of various characters uh, and such. And they get uh, the crone, I think is the big bad here. That is uh, what they're... Uh, that sort of appears in the town with her her uh, main, uh, you know, compatriots 
taking down mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of people, attacking people to kidnap one of the kids, uh, the son of the queen, uh, yeah. who is, uh, I guess, supposed to be like Mad Mardigan in style. Uh, mm-hmm. It's supposed to be his son, but Val Kilmer's not in the show uh, for whatever reason. But uh, uh, then, you know, a bunch of the kids plus uh, a couple of adults get sent out to go rescue him, get him back. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the uh, Laura Denon is not supposed to go with him, but she sneaks out. Uh, but they run into Willow mm. uh, out in his uh, whole town. And he recognizes Laura Dannon grown up and sort of seeks to, you know, train her again. Cause I guess at some point he wanted to train her and uh, the queen very much was against it uh, for whatever reason. Uh, so he's trying to do it now and all that. And yeah, they just go on this big journey as the, the kids are sort of, you know, forced to come of age. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they fight for this whole thing. So, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Uh, but pretty neat for what it is. So, I'm still like halfway through. But it's all out on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, that's one of the things I'm going to be trying to finish up here next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, other thing, I've, I have finished up all the One Piece that's on Netflix. It goes up to like episode 325, mm-hmm. uh, the end of the Water 7 arc. So, I started watching. Uh, what's next in the Japanese dub? It's on Crunchyroll, uh, where some weird shit's going on. You know, very yeah. different than every other arc starts. Mm-hmm. They run into some weird new area or whatever, mm-hmm. run into some new baddies and all that. So that whole thing's going on. And yeah, since I had been watching a bunch of One Piece, I decided to try out the demo for One Piece Odyssey, uh, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was gonna say that's supposed to be pretty good. Yeah, uh, it's uh, the demo is like the first two hours of the game. Mm-hmm. That'll give you a pretty good idea of what to expect out of it mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. But I enjoyed it enough. I was gonna uh, picked up the pre-ordered it so I could start playing it yesterday. Uh, mm-hmm. I did a stream for that. Uh, basically, got to the point where you do your first like section uh, where you're going back to memories of reliving some of the major arcs in the early parts. I believe these are all arcs that I have, you know, Mm. watched up to this point. So it's basically about perfect for where I'm at uh, for that stuff. Like Alabasta is what we're going through and they're very much like, Oh, this will mostly be what you remember, but you know, like memories, it'll be fuzzy and things will be a bit different. Uh, And so they're trying to figure out like where in time are we, uh, because they know sort of the the events that happen that lead to uh, Crocodile starting his his uh, attempt to take out uh, all the the rebel forces and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of where I ended up starting getting some different things going on, uh, where they go run into the Going Mary, mm-hmm. uh, parked off outside this one town. Uh, but then there's a bunch of Marines around that aren't supposed to be there yet. Mm. So, yeah, there's some some weird stuff going on, but it's pretty neat. The battle system's mostly standard, but they they, they do this whole weird thing where uh, there can be sort of different uh, areas in the fight so that it 
it allows for them to have a notion of, you know, uh, a character getting surrounded by enemies mm. and having to deal with that, uh, which they introduce with Usopp getting surrounded by penguin enemies, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. So it's very Dragon Quest-esque where a lot of the enemies are an- uh, animals, uh, at least so far that's mostly what I've been fighting, plus some some weird Colossus dudes uh, that are like energy beings, but with a lot of big rock structures that they're uh, that are part of them. It's weird, but mm-hmm. the game's pretty solid. But yeah, that's uh, that's it. Uh, I've been playing Rocket League, some more mm-hmm. on that. Uh, just going through the season there. Uh, also been playing more Power Wash Simulator. I've finished the campaign on Xbox or the mm-hmm. the PC Game Pass version. Finished that campaign and uh, got the rest of the achievements. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have the full thousand on that. Uh, Enjoyed going back for that. I was like about 45 hours on that, so that was pretty good timing there. Uh, but also been playing some stuff on my Steam Deck. Uh, uh, some of the things, I've been playing a lot of smaller stuff, so one of them is 80s Overdrive, mm-hmm. uh, which is an arcade racing game that's basically what if you mixed OutRun with Need for Speed. Mm. Uh, so you got... Worst final race in the entire genre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm enjoying it so far. It's it's a lot of nonsense because uh, a lot of the when you go into races, it's basically telling like, uh, this is kind of how long it is. It, it doesn't really give you a distance, just like short, medium, long. Someone mm. might try to bribe you to take out another driver. Yeah, you'll get some missions like uh, collect some of these tapes mm. uh, or finish third so that my drivers can be uh, looking real good, that kind of stuff. And so you want to get first every race, but you'll do those missions because you get a bunch of cash for that, which you use to upgrade your vehicle mm-hmm. uh, through that. And uh, yeah, the, the other drivers uh, or not the, the other sort of just normal drivers uh, drive like assholes. The further you get into the game, they're mm-hmm. just AI just yeah. designed for them. Just be like, all right, time for me to take random turns mm-hmm. uh, just to, mess with you and then you'll start running into races where cops show up uh which they're very stupid concept in this game uh where basically you just pass them uh then you see uh flashing lights on the bottom of your screen sort of signify where they're gonna sort of shoot way past you and then essentially like break to try and crash into you from the front Mm. uh they're pretty easy to avoid uh though if you get good combination of crazy traffic and them and other drivers. It can cause some fun chaos. They'll miss you, but they'll take out like three other cars in the attempt. Yeah. Yeah. You have like damage. I can tell it's like a mobile game in the way it's all designed. Uh, You take damage, you have fuel that uh, you can lose or use up in races that you have to pay to refill. You pay to, you can definitely smell the stink of mobile on it. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, Like, you're slowly upgrading your car. Uh, they take they tell you like, oh, it's like 250 bucks uh, extra for each upgrade. Mm. Uh, but yeah, you'll get like a lot of achievements out of it uh, as you're playing it. Uh, constantly like, oh, you know, win your first race, buy your first car, upgrade your first car for each of the things you upgrade. Get your first cop radar, which mm. cop radar is pretty useless because it just 
kind of gives you a distance when you're going to run into one, but it's also like there's such a non-entity early on, at least, that mm-hmm. it's not really that big of a deal. They become a minor annoyance later on. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, you're just basically taking on these series of races, but you're going to do a lot of grinding as a result Yeah, with that. So, yeah, it's it's pretty solid. Uh, look forward mm-hmm. to put some more time into that. Also been playing some Horizon Chase Turbo. Uh, that was when I started up. I already played that on PlayStation, but I was like, I'll play this on PC on the Steam Deck. Yeah. It's pretty mm-hmm. solid for what it is. Uh, so yeah, if you have trouble with that last race in '80s Overdrive, just let me know. I'll tell you what to do. Mm. Yeah, I'll see how it goes. Uh, but yeah, just farting around with a bunch of other stuff, like trying out a lot of the smaller games that I have downloaded mm-hmm. on here, just to see how how they play on it. Some are weird. Uh, some are like, oh, this works perfectly, and it's like, oh, this is touch focused or has a weird cursor thing to it that doesn't work so well. Yeah, uh, a lot of that stuff, but most of them work just fine. So right. that's been pretty much it for me. So how about you, Patrick? Yeah, Pat. What about you? Buying Switch games all over the place. Like yeah. I've had huge shipments coming in from Amazon, from Facebook Marketplace, GameStop. I've just decided that I don't really trust optical media, mm-hmm. but I also don't trust Nintendo with digital media. Yeah. So it's really just restructuring how I do, how I have my <clears throat> entire gaming library set up. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm probably closing in on 60 Switch games as a result of it. That's just physical, by the way. I've got more digital. Mm. Um I've discovered that the Switch as a platform solves a lot of my problems with gaming. Mm-hmm. It feels like um, not a lot of systems are out there actually trying to get exclusive to hang their hats on. Mm-hmm. And the Switch doesn't really have that problem. There's there's plenty that you there's plenty on there that you can only get on the Switch. And from what I've been playing, like Damn, I've slept through this entire generation on Nintendo. I I need to catch up. And so um, I've been doing that. I'm actually on vacation all this week, so I'll get a chance to really sit down and dig into everything that I've been purchasing. But it just feels good to have a system that has this deep library that that is really signature of it. Mm-hmm. Rather than, um, like... PS5 has three or four exclusives now, I think. Xbox has one or two. Mm-hmm. But um, really, the, the pissing contest in ninth generation is more to do with, well, how well do we run the games that you can get everywhere else? Mm. And it doesn't feel like they have an identity. Switch has an identity, so that's kind of where I'm leaning for the time being. Um, I also took some of the money that I raised from... Uh, selling off my retro games and picked up a Steam Deck. And I've released a couple videos about my impressions of it because that's kind of what I'm doing on my channel. Mm-hmm. Um, up to this point, I've only actually played one game on it. Hmm. And it was, it's Outrun 2006. And my idea was I was going to sit down and play it while all these other games download. And then it just got its hooks in me all over again. And, you know, here I am just, um, Playing through the single, playing through the single player campaign all over again, and mm-hmm. 
just experiencing it anew. It's also getting me to re-examine my hacked soundtrack because I'm definitely going to be doing one of those again on the Steam Deck. Mm. And I kind of stopped in the middle of what I had going on on my Alienware Alpha for that. Yeah. So I'm going to do my best to turn it into a more a more complete mod. I think there were still a few tracks I, I could have added that I never got around to. Um, Camino Amia More from the M2 port of the original Outrun mm-hmm. on the 3DS and Switch is definitely going on there. Maybe in more than one form because there's a pretty good remix out there that's sort of a nod to the Saturn era. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm really... Um, it's just got me excited about Outrun again, which may not have been the may not have been my intent when I bought when I bought my Steam Deck, mm-hmm. but it's what happened, and I'm just going with it. Um, yeah. And finally, there were a few months there where um, I was just so bogged down with other things, I didn't get into, I didn't get to read my regular comics at all. So I've been mm. um, getting caught up on that. Finished off the the Judgment, yeah, the. Um, Avengers, X-Men, Eternals, Judgment Day arc. Mm-hmm. And that actually feels consequential to the to all three series moving forward, so I'm going to be interested in seeing where that all goes. And mm-hmm. um, They're building up to something later this month called Sins of Sinister, which is really kind of a an attempt to recapture what they accomplished with the Age of Apocalypse back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Only the obviously the central figure is Mr. Sinister, and so that's going to be fun, especially the way they've been writing him the last few years. Um, I'm really looking forward to that, but that's what I've been up to. Okay. Uh, well, as for me, um, I mentioned uh, last week how on top of my new PS5, I also got a couple of games for my Switch, new games for my Switch, and I've been more or less focusing uh, almost entirely on them this week. Um, and especially, I've been playing Xenoblade Chronicles 3. Um, and holy shit, that game is... It, it, I was not expecting the type of story that I was getting when I started playing that game, but I'm 100% all for it. Um it's it, like it's already just from the very beginning very different in tone from you know the first two Xenoblade games. I loved the original Xenoblade Chronicles, and I also really loved you know the redo they did for the Switch, which had the additional uh, you know uh, epilogue content that they put in there. Um, and I liked Xenoblade Chronicles too. There was a lot of things about two that I didn't like, but I also enjoyed it too, but Xenoblade Chronicles Three really threw me from a for a loop almost to the from the beginning because from the very start, I mean, even from like the cover on the box art, you can tell that sort of what they're do- going with here is that this is supposed to be the result after the universes of Xenoblade One and Xenoblade Two ended up colliding with each other, essentially, and this is the aftermath of it. Um, so you're seeing. You know, all of these characters, all of whom are, like, representative of the various, you know, races and stuff that are in the both respective Xenoblade games. Um, You know, you're definitely seeing, like, you start off, 
uh, in the fir- in the beginning game with uh, basically okay. So basically, the story here is there's this essentially this forever war that's going on between these two uh, groups. Um, with uh, one of them is called Kevis, and the other one is called. Aegis, I believe, is what they're called. And uh, essentially, they're locked in a forever war, more or less. And the reason they're locked in a forever war is because most of their technology and also, like, their their uh, life... I don't want to say lifespans, because that's not quite accurate, and I'll say why in a second. But their overall, like, power level or so is determined by how much of the the rival army's lives that they can get to power uh, their machinery. And specifically this enormous, like, gigantic uh, mecha machine that's called a Pharaonis. And all of these Pharaonises have something on them called a flame clock. And the flame clock is essentially this sort of circular meter that keeps track of, like, all of the life force they've gotten that they keep in total. And essentially, it, it like, powers all their machinery, and it also kind of acts as kind of like a secondary food source, more or less. Um, because the thing is, all of the people that you meet in this game, and not all of them, but most of them, essentially are tank children, more or less. They have only a lifespan of 10 years, and then they die. Um and they all know this, and in fact, every one of them has this uniform mark on their body somewhere. Sometimes it's on the forehead or the chin or the neck or whatever. And, you know, the darker and darker it gets, the closer and closer they are to, you know, their final moment. Um, but what happens is every time, you know, somebody dies, their life force kind of drifts around. So all these armies have a person in them called an offseer. And what the Offseer's job is, is they have a, well, they have like a flute that they play that they sort of off, see off all the life force so that it can make its way to, I guess, back to their home nation or whatever. I still haven't really figured that out entirely. Um, but what happens is that um, at first you're playing a group of soldiers from Kevis and the Kevis are basically supposed to represent all the people from the first original Xenoblade. So you've got uh, people there, like you've got you know regular humans. You've also got characters that are representative are the from the people from the Mechanists. So you know the gray and black looking people. Um, let's see. There's also a Nopon with you as well, um, and there's also the you know the ones that have the wings on their heads. There's also one of them as well. And then you go up against the uh, people who are, let's see, against the Ag- Agnius. That's what they're called. Yes, Agnius. Um, uh, and they're all the people, you know, the various groups that you saw in the second one. And they're at war with each other. And then what happens is that a group of the ones from uh, the Kevis and from the Agnius uh, end up intercepting this guy that's carrying around this thing. Uh, and they, it turns out he's actually, like, legitimately aging. Like, he's 60 years old. And these are people who've never known anything else, and then that's when they start to realize that something's kind of up with this world. And then what happens is they start coming across this group that call themselves Mobius, 
that are made up of a bunch of people who are essentially like working both sides of this conflict for some reason. And it also seems to be involving that there might be some sort of thing going on here about cloning and people like experiencing past lives and stuff. It's so weird and I'm 100% all for it. Um, I will say though, that if there, if you don't like cut scenes uh, in your video games, um, Hey, you Maybe might sit get, this one out. Yeah, you might get a little irritated with this one because it's got a lot of cutscenes. Um, but you know, you still got all the standard Xenoblade stuff that you know you love. Um, although I will say uh, the combat scene system is much simpler than it was in, especially the first one. It's a lot more intuitive and easy to pick up. Um, but they also changed some things noticeably because, um, first of all, unlike in the original Xenoblade, you can actually, like, each character is, like, starts off representative of a particular class. And as you go on meeting up with other people and, like, interacting with your group, all the characters can essentially change their class on the fly. So, you know, that's a big thing. But also what happens... cool. Yeah, which is cool. But there's another part of it, too, which is that as the game goes on, you end up gaining this power called Ouroboros, where you and a corresponding member from another person in the team can meet up and become essentially a henshin. <laughs> um, I mean, there's that's really no other way to describe it. That's exactly what it looks like. Um, and... They end up, like, temporarily getting, like, a bunch of really strong, uh, you know, attacks and everything until, you know, they overheat and then have to go back. So it offers a lot of novelties that the first two games don't. Um, but overall, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a damn good game. Um, really good. It's also, it, it really does push the, the Switch, you know, the Switch's technological power to its absolute just breakneck limit um to a point that i'm surprised that the the actual cartridge just doesn't explode because it's it's kind of amazing but um i played that um and i'm also still playing splatoon 3 as well um i've got that on the way yeah uh, a lot of fun too that one also um really not much to add to that um, it's a great book. It's a great game. Uh, and, you know, the sort of, you know, the the online stuff I've been getting more into. And uh, one of the neat things about this, about Splatoon 3, is as you go through the campaign, you can pick up stuff to, like, decorate the lobby in uh, the online stuff, which is just kind of cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, that's more or less it as far as gaming is concerned. Um, the other big thing is that I got a job interview up. Um, and uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's going to be at Wednesday um, for uh, patient transport over at the nearby hospital. Nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, which, for those of you who don't know what patient transport is in hospitals, it's a fancy term for saying wheelchair jockey. <laughs> um, you're literally just, uh, you know, Taking people in wheelchairs from one part of the hospital to another. Very simple. <laughs> yeah. um, but it pays well. And, I was going to uh, say, it would have to for being basically hospital work. 
Yeah, um, it pays well. And, you know, I've got medical experience, so that helps it. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, you know, just uh, obviously I don't have the job yet. But if I do get it, that might mean I might have to, you know, move some things around. Uh, but, uh, you know, as far as the show is concerned. But, anyway. We've never done that before. Yeah, like we've never done that before. Hey, remember when we used to do this show only on Fridays? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, hey, Chris, you were a completely different person. Yeah. Yeah, that was a that was a thing. But uh all right, so anyway. Uh with that out of the way, uh anybody want to add on anything before we move on? Yeah, Drift Stage is back. It's on Steam in early access. They're trying to uh fund continued development on it. So mm-hmm. yeah, if you yeah. like your arcade racers, here's a very worthy project getting a second chance. I definitely uh-huh. recommend checking it out. Yeah. Um Alrighty then. Well, uh, with that out of the way, it's now time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Brandon's Random Factoid. Um, so when I first started here at Smashpad, one of the topics I love to bring up a lot and discuss a lot, uh, mostly because, you know, for gamers of, like, current and more recent generations, it's kind of weird, you know, we, like, okay, the concept of like you know the the sort of discussion between you know do video games cause real world violence in some ways that particular sort of discussion never really went away but it's almost entirely been put on the back burner now in recent years like most people don't think that it's a thing um you know we more or less won that debate and now it's mostly just you know the the work of cranks but there really was a time, especially in our lifetimes, when there was this really serious debate about whether or not video games caused violence. And this was especially true in the early to mid-90s. And the reason, and it, it got up to a point where it even got to, like, up to Congress. And basically, the media, because, you know, old media always hates new media, um, there was always this, the group I call the Infamous Four. It was the same four games that always came up every single time. And of those four games, only one of them ever actually amounted to anything. <laughs> the other threes ever, ever only, became, only went into obscurity or became some weird cult phenomenon that people only appreciated ironically in the future. Those games were... And here we go. Mortal Kombat, Time Killers, Night Trap, and Lethal Enforcers. And I thought one of the things we could do over the next couple of shows is we could talk individually about three, not Mortal Kombat, because that one actually succeeded. (laughs) Um, We could talk about three of these games that sort of, kind of in some weird way, are very very much epitomized the era that they came out in, and yet at the same time, uh, very much shows you how, you know, current, you know, something that you consider so current can end up falling by the wayside so fast. So we're going to start this week by talking about time killers. Now, real quick, uh, Pat, uh, Chris, did any of you ever get a chance to actually play time killers when it was in the arcade? Yeah, the movie theater down the street from my house had it. It sucked. 
Yeah, Chris, what about you? Nope. All right. Yeah, uh, I'm going to say you didn't really miss much <laughs> because, um, like Chris said, yeah, it kind of sucked. Um, the game was very clearly something that was made. I mean, and you know, back when I remember seeing it for the first time when I was a kid, I was absolutely shocked at just the sheer amount of violence that was on screen. Because you got to remember, this was 1992. <laughs> All right, you got to keep that in your head when this game came out. This type now, this type of thing is pretty common now. But in 1992, this shit was mind blowing. Um, so 1991, Street Fighter II comes out, basically creates a whole new genre for fighting arcade fighting games. And every other developer and their mother decides that they need to catch up somehow and put out their own Street Fighter killer, right? And I think there was a real West versus East divide on actually understanding what made Street Fighter II great. Yeah, and that um, we actually talked about that previously because you could essentially because both of those uh, particular sort of uh, parts of the industry basically sort of pursued a specific uh, strategy, and really, it really was kind of more the Eastern half of it that understood it more than the Western half did. Um, but we'll get to that another time. Um, <laughs> well, it does circle back to uh, where we are going with this, because on the Western side, they wanted the spectacle, and they knew yeah. that um, that was what was going to get them paid. Yeah, but the problem was that they didn't understand. Part of what made Street Fighter II so good wasn't just the spectacle. It's, it certainly was a spectacle, make no mistake. It was the technical about. brilliance. Yes, it was the technical brilliance and the design and the programming. That's you know. why when you go back and play um, like any retro fighting game that held up, it came yeah. from Japan. Yeah. Whereas if you come back and play any retro fire game in the West that's held up, it's, it's morally, it's mostly incidental. Yeah. And Time Killers is very much emblematic of that. Um, like I said, Street Fighter Two came out in 1991. Time Killers came out the following year, and holy shit, does it show? <laughs> um. Because they were very clearly trying to build on a a sort of model that Street Fighter Two had built, but you know, obviously not really succeeding all that well. But keep in mind that when Time Killers came about, it wasn't the only you know Street Fighter was no longer the only game on the market either, because you also had this brand new Western fighting game franchise that was slowly taking over. And that was Mortal Kombat. And of course, Mortal Kombat, as we all know, would actually grow and flourish and maybe hit the skids for a little while. And then Mortal Kombat 9 would come out and just completely blow it all out of the water. Yeah, when 9 came down, that was actually where we started seeing Western fighting games start to um, match some of the technical brilliance of what was coming out of Japan up to that point. Yeah. Um also, because the technology had also got had managed to get, we could actually do that. Because uh, anybody who's ever played the original Mortal Kombat trilogy can tell you um, the actual technique involved is very dodgy. <laughs> um, but there are literal coin flips, well, effectively coin flips involved as far as judging priority. Yeah, um, but anyway, so back to Time Killer. So Time Killers came out in nineteen. 19- 
it was very I, I very much like to sort of compare it to like the you know movies made by like the asylum. It was like a mockbuster version of a video game. Um <laughs> you know, it was meant to be like the western part of Street Fighter 2. It was very much supposed to be, you know, infused with all of that, you know, Gen X sort of cynicism and lust for violence and everything. Um it was also like one of the very first like weapons-based fighting games that was trying to hop onto the Street Fighter 2 bandwagon. Now eventually that type of thing would eventually get overshadowed by Samurai Showdown or you know Samurai Spirit as it's called over in Japan. Um and it actually wasn't even the the only one. There was another game that came out around the time called Blandia by a lummer, you know, the guys who made Gladiator back in the day. Um oh, now you're going really obscure because that's one even I haven't heard of. Yeah, that one's that one came out around the same time as well. Um, obviously, it didn't make much of an impact because, well, Patrick Mifflin obviously didn't hear it, and he's heard every goddamn fighting game you can you can think of. But basically, here's what the game was: how Time Killers was. It was a game where this uh, death, the Grim Reaper, and I literally mean the Grim Reaper. He is a grim dude with a re- with you know with scythe. Uh, decides that he's going to give, he's going to take eight violent individuals from history, all of human history, bring them together into a tournament. Was it eight? It might have been more than eight. Let me see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, it's eight. Um, and fight them in the was, tournament. And then that was kind it, of the magic number for fighting games yeah. back then. Yeah. And then they would fight each other. And then after that, whoever could actually beat him in a fight, he could then give them a second chance at life and they can do whatever they wanted. So you basically had also the plot of Eternal Champions. Oddly enough, because yeah, um, that's exactly what Eternal Champions would be and was far, far better than Time Killers ever was. But anyway, um, so the eight characters you had were one of the night, a guy named Wolf who was like a knight in King Arthur's court, an alien that had, you know, a, pe- a purple reptile alien with swords for arms, a uh, gladiator woman from like an Amazon planet, a caveman, uh, a dude from like a cyberpunk future with a mohawk and a chainsaw who kind of became like the, his name was, his name was Rancid and I remember him because he was like all over the cabinet art. Um, There was another guy from like a future spacefaring period with like a lightsaber uh, there was a there was also a samurai, and then there was a Viking. And basically, how the game played is that more or less it played like your standard Street Fighter game. You know, life bar, two out of three rounds, fighting each other. Everyone has special moves. You can knock the guy, you know, senseless for a moment to put in some extra damage every so often. Here's what in theory. <laughs> yeah, in theory. In in reality, the controls for this game were a suggestion at best. Um because they did not program this game well at all. But that's well besides the point at this point. Um so what was you Wasn't this about? an Atari joint? Um it was actually made by Incredible Technologies. Um and I'm thinking I, of Primal Rage. Yeah, Primal Rage was an Atari thing. Um, Incredible Technologies actually did make w- some other games um, later on, um, one of which I'll get to in a moment, um, because it actually is pretty good. Um, but 
what this game was unique about that made it unique and actually was kind of unique for the time and still kind of is. Um, uh, one was it's sort of it's, it's control layout because unlike, you know, standard fighting, which I mean, at this point it was, you know, defined by street fighter, which had the standard, which is now sort of considered the standard sort of button layout, which is, you know, weak punch, medium punch, heavy punch, weak kick. Yeah. Medium kick, heavy kick. The three by two. The three by two. Very standard. Um, instead, Time Killers had it where all of the punches and kicks of Ver- were uh, attached to buttons that corresponded to body parts. So there was a left punch, a right punch, a left kick, a right kick, and also a headbutt that you could do that was attached to it. Um, you could also do stronger attacks by pressing both limb buttons at the same time. Um but what was also unique was its body part severing mechanic. If you did enough damage to a particular body part, you could actually sever it from the opponent, basically rendering it useless. They could no longer use it. You could theoretically keep doing this until, you know, they are limited to only punches or only kicks if, you know, they don't bleed out by that time. Um you could also attempt a death move by pressing all five buttons at once, which would which would attack and decapitate the opponent. You could also do something similar if the opponent was uh, unconscious, you know, dizzy, called a super death move, where they just straight up hack off every available limb that's there. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't permanent. All these limbs and stuff would be restored by the next round. Um, so that was that. Um, and then, of course, you finally got to the final boss, which, of course, was Death himself. And Death was the single cheapest friggin' <laughs> boss in all of fighting games. More cheap than, you know, Gil or M. Bison or any of the other ones. I think the West was collectively the biggest defender, the second biggest <clears throat> defender to horrible fighting game boss fights in the 90s. Yeah. Um... Number one was SNK. Yeah. Every attack he had was twice as powerful as the one you did. And you couldn't even defeat him by a standard way. The only way you could defeat him is by actually decapitating him. And you had to do this twice for two different rounds. Yeah. Um, Also, his design was just so stupid because it was, you know, it's like, he's the Grim Reaper. He's already got a great design in and of himself, right? You know. Skull, robe, scythe, pretty intimidating already on his own. Now, it was the 90s not edgy enough? Yeah, it wasn't edgy enough, so he looks like a Image Comics ripoff. Like a reject from Spawn. As you do. All like purples and neon greens and shit. I'm not lying. Just look it up on Google. He looks fucking ridiculous. Um, but yeah, so that was Time Killers. It was Incredible Technologies. Now, Incredible Technologies um, did not stop with this. They actually had some other games that they did. Probably the most successful was their Golden Tee Golf games, um, which were heavily... EIL. <laughs> yep. Um, they also developed Championship Wrestling, uh, Winter Games they ported to the Amiga. They also worked on Capcom Bowling, Arlington Horse Race. But they only ever made one other fighting game, and it's actually a pretty good one. I mean, it's not 
like mind blowing or anything, but the amount of content they managed to shove into it and managed to create a relatively decent sort of story and world building for it. Um, especially considering this game came out in like 1994, 1995. Um, and that was a game called Bloodstorm. And it still used sort of the guts of Time Killer. Like it still based its, its, um, you know, it's comp, it's comp control scheme around, you know, the left punch, right punch thing. And developers tend to stick with what they know. Yeah, but it also added a bunch of new things, too. Um, for one thing, all the characters, you know, their weaponry, instead of being like, um, you know, like a standard weapon, like a sword or an axe, they all had, like, um, essentially, like, hand-gripped, not hand-gripped weapons, but, like, glove weapons, Stuff that fit over the whole hand. So, you know, one of them was like a a buzzsaw. Another one was like a sort of spirally thing they stabbed at. It was kind of weird looking. One of them was like a mace. Um, and what was neat about it was, first of all, it was insanely violent, even by time killer standards. Uh, we're talking about a type of violence where you could cut this dude in half and you could like see bits and pieces of his internal organs still twitching on the floor. Oh yeah. Um, they also added things like uh, stage death finishers, you know, stage hazards, things like uh, a stage that was like on a spaceship that had like a bunch of violent uh, rotating fans at the top. And if you uppercut them strong enough, instant death. Um, now it sounds one- like you're describing Mortal Kombat 4. Yeah, then you had yeah they actually did this before Mortal Kombat Four. So yeah, um, there was another that was like a cave. You could push them over the edge. They'd end up on the lactite instant death. There was one that was actually pretty unique. It was a it like took place like over like a toxic waste dump, and it was actually fine by itself. But if you had like a special move like a grenade or something that could detonate on the ground, you could actually like blow a hole into the floor. And if the enemy, you know, the rival opponent wasn't careful, they could fall in into the, you know, the toxic waste, instant death. So you had that. But you also had what was also cool, which was the unbelievable amount of secret characters that you could encounter in this game. There was a lot of them. Um, I'm not even going to begin to try and describe all of them because there was a bunch, but like, there was one that was named Shadow because he was literally just, he, he, unlike, you know, like Noob Cybot, he was um, literally just a shadow on the floor. You couldn't see him until after you defeated him. And then he got to see his head and he kind of looked like Stretch Armstrong, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, there was another character named Blood that was literally like this red humanoid whose head was like a continuing geyser of blood. There was also this other character I remember you fought in a, it was like a trash compactor with like spiked walls that were slowly closing in. And I remember this, I do not remember this character's name. I specifically remember her outfit though, because she was like uh, the most dominatrix looking fighting game character I have ever encountered up to that point. Like even more than like Sophia from Tashinden. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, you know, eventually the, uh, the market kind of fell by the worst side and incredible technologies folded, uh, I think around 2000. Um, I'm taking a look at it on YouTube right now. I don't think I've ever seen this game out in the wild. I have, I played it a couple of times. It was actually pretty fun, but um, 
Yeah, uh, that was Time Killers, and that was Incredible Technologies, and that has been yet another installment of Brandon's Random Factoid. <sighs> okay, so... With I'm that, starting out- to wonder if I was off base with the Mortal Kombat 4 comparison, because now I'm getting more of a World Heroes for Edge Lords vibe. Yeah, it is kind of, but uh, moving on from there, it's now time to start the show proper, and as always with the show proper, we start off with our assholes of the week, and our first major at well, we have one group of assholes for the week, but... They're pretty high up on there, and that was the group of assholes that tried to storm Brazil's Congressional Building and Secret Corps Building and the Presidential Palace. Guess which ex-president of Brazil they supported? Yeah. Yeah, it's very much exactly like what happened on January 6th. Yeah. Uh, Luckily, it seems like I don't think there were any deaths in this. Nope. Uh, So that was good. It sounds like it was also taken to 11. Well, it happened on a Sunday. Yeah. So I imagine most of the people were probably at home mm-hmm. uh, outside of security people, mm. uh, yeah. that kind of stuff. And yeah, they decided like, hey, let's arrest these people uh, while they're here, you know, chasing mm-hmm. them around because that's not what happened here. No. Uh, they let them just hang around, do their thing, kind of leave. Some people got arrested, but not nearly enough. Yeah. Uh, in this case, however, they started rounding them immediately. Like, by the end of the day, they had, like, 400 of them. Yeah, that's good. there's been about 1,500 arrests Yep, at the point. And so much Lula was basically talking about, you know, we're going to have to look at these cops as well, because yeah. they're, uh, I think, two of the buildings didn't get broken into. So there's yeah. belief that's inside people, you know, uh, made either the main entrance or some side entrance available to them to come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, unsurprising, they destroyed a lot of property inside mm-hmm. uh, a lot of statues and paintings and all that kind of stuff, which is especially a big deal because for those who don't know, Brazil was originally like a Portuguese colony. So a lot of that shit is like hundreds of years old. Yeah. And yeah, this uh this whole thing was definitely uh aided by some of Trump's allies. Mm-hmm. Steve uh, Bannon in particular. That is yeah. the name that people keep Talking. bringing up. Yeah. I forget the who the, the other one was mentioned. Um was it Jason Miller? It might have been Jason Miller. Uh who runs Getter, I yeah. think it is. Uh who was very much hoping to use that as like the platform for organizing this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And obviously Bolsonaro was nowhere in the country. He left no, he was in Florida. Florida. Yeah. He's been in Florida for the last couple weeks. Yeah. Planning this from afar so that yeah. he wouldn't be around uh, for this, but all these other people could uh, put themselves in uh, the danger zone for this stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, very much is a huge deal, uh, so mm-hmm. much so that the uh, the Supreme Court is looking into investigating Bolsonaro for his aid in this whole thing. Yeah, uh, and if anybody in this entire story, if you've been thinking, man, Lula has really been coming down like the hammer of God on these people. No, 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 no. It's their Supreme Court that's been doing it. Because yeah. their building got broke into. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so now everybody cries. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very much uh, a big deal. Luckily, mm-hmm. 
No real major injuries or deaths or anything of that sort. Yeah. Uh, so that's which good is news. shocking considering you know Brazil's history. Like yeah. this, this is something that very easily could have become a bloodbath. Because um, you got to remember, Brazil has only been a democracy for what, like fifty years now. Um, and you know, Lula himself was essentially brought down by a very, shall we say, it's complicated. The point is, you know, military coups are a thing that happened that have happened in Brazil in the past. And, you know, Bolsonaro himself was originally, you know, worked in the old military dictatorship. And, you know, there was a lot of talk, you know, up to and after the allegations that he was going to try and pull a military coup. But it looks like the military is on Lula's side right now. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to keep investigating this and see how far it goes. That yeah. sure blew up in their face. Oh yeah, it did. Uh, and I mean, a lot of people are like, wow, I, the, to be honest, that's kind of the, I guess one of the benefits, if you want to call that of being a democracy that used to be a military dictatorship, like, yeah, the Yunta is gone and everything, but you know, bits and pieces of the old security apparatus are still lying around. So why not use it? Yeah. You know, the, they're ready to be the find out part of fuck around and find out. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, anyway, so yeah, they were our assholes of the week and they are very much going to get what they deserve. Um, but fortunately we have some heroes of the week and these are late heroes of labor. Um, so in New York city, the nurses union, they actually went on strike for how long were they on strike for? It wasn't very long. Three days, I think. Yeah. Like three days. Uh, at Mount Sinai in Montefiore, and they managed to get what they want. They reached a deal, and the strike ended this week. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, the New York State Nurses Association Union uh, said it has reached tentative deals with Mount Sinai Health System and Montefiore Health System. Mm-hmm. That includes concrete enforceable safe staffing ratios. Yeah. So there will always be enough nurses at the bedside to provide safe patient care, not just on paper. Uh, yeah, they're back working uh, uh, the next morning. Uh, won't be finalized until the nurses hold a vote. Uh, among the proposed stipulations are that all inpatient units at Mount Sinai will have set nurse-to-patient nurse ratios, and at Mount Fior, mm-hmm. Montefiore, uh, staffing in the emergency department staffing will see an increase. Uh, they also agreed to financial penalties for failing to comply with agreements across all units. Exact staffing ratios outlined in the deal were not immediately available. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, a lot of stuff like that, like making sure there were enough people working there, not like cutting corners in staffing so that everybody had to work harder than they should have been able to or mm-hmm. you know, should have had to. Uh, that kind of stuff, uh, as well as I think pay stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, high pay, higher pay and better conditions will all be a key part of reaching uh the number of yeah the uh, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics projects that the U.S. needs to hire and train more than two hundred seventy-five thousand additional nurses before twenty thirty. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, they're gonna have to start paying people better to stay in this line of work. Oh yeah, because uh, a lot of them are leaving because uh, the people running these places are running it like a business and not like yeah. a place of uh, medical care. 
Yeah, but that's also part and parcel to, you know, the fact health, how healthcare works in the United States anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like we should maybe have it be universal health care, not capitalism health care. Yeah. Of some kind, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's not like you have to do a one size fits all thing. There's various models out there that you can look at and take ideas from. Yeah. You know, Cause you know everybody loves uh, health insurance companies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everybody's favorite thing to deal with. Yeah. If you're worried about, like, whether or not, you know, if I do this, will my, you know, my, um, you know, where my taxes go up uh, or anything, or will I have to pay more taxes? Uh, you might want to look into the Bismarck model that they use in Germany, which was specifically created so that they would not have to institute any new taxes. <laughs> but uh, yeah. that's another thing. And then we got this other story from the good union workers over at Staten Island warehouse for Amazon. Amazon once again loses a new bid to overturn the historic union vote for its Staten Island warehouse workers. Yeah. Uh, The National Labor Relations Board, Region 28 Regional Director, Mm -hmm. dismissed Amazon's allegations that labor board officers and union organizers improperly influenced the union vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a hilarious thing because Amazon was very much trying to do that mm-hmm. uh, in the other direction. Yep. Uh, in the spring of last year, the upstart Amazon labor union won the right to represent some 8,000 workers at the massive New York warehouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, another saying Amazon should recognize its first unionized warehouse in the U S uh, rejecting the company's bid to unravel a breakthrough union win on Staten Island. Uh, it requires Amazon to begin bargaining in good faith with the union However, the company is expected to appeal the ruling before full labor board in Washington, D.C., which it can request by January 25th. Mm. Uh, labor experts say members of the board are likely to side with their regional colleagues in confirming the union's win. Uh, in that case, it could make its way into courts. So they're prepared to spend all the money to fight this all the way instead of just bargaining with these people. Yeah, which would honestly would be the easiest road at this point, considering how much money they've wasted. <laughs> Yeah. on trying to overturn. It's like, just for God's sakes, man. <laughs> it's Amazon. Yeah. They waste a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so with that, uh, that is the show proper. It's now move on time to move on to the sh- proper show proper. And unfortunately, we lost one of the greats this week. Rest in peace, Jeff Beck. He died this week at the age of... I think it was he. He was in his seventies. Seventy-eight. Yeah, he was seventy-eight years old. Jeff Beck was one of the like he. He may not have been like a you know like a big chart topper guitarist. Um, even though he definitely worked with some real chart toppers, we'll get to that. Um, but he was he's probably known. yeah. He's known. He is the guitarist. Guitar. He was you know it, all most of the major guitarists you make love. You know, if you're a music person. Uh, he either worked for them or he heavily inspired them in some way. Um, he originally got his start as being a member of the Yardbirds. Um, now, that's significant for the fact that the Yardbirds actually was host to three of the biggest guitarists that would ever work in the genre. Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, and of course, Jeff Beck. In fact, when Jimmy Page first put together the band that would become Led Zeppelin, they originally started off as being called the New Yardbirds. But, um, but you know, Keith Moon made that famous that famous comment about how it would all go 
history. But yeah, Jeff was, you know, he, he never made like huge hits, but he had a lot of influence on a lot of people. Um, Gamers will know him from Gran Turismo 4. Yep. He worked with, uh, what's his name, on the 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 guy from T-Square who did all does all the music for the Turismo series. Yeah. He uh, worked with him. Um, he worked with guys like uh, Carmine Apis, who was from Vanilla Fudge. Uh, he reached... He he would he he became probably most famous for a bunch of like instrumental albums he put out in the mid seventies like Blow by Blow and Wired. Um, he was he was actually he's one of the handful of people that have been put into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame more than once. Uh, he originally showed up there at the Yard when the Yardbirds were put in there in ninety two, um, where he famously went up to the podium and said, "They kicked me out. Fuck them." <laughs> And then he entered the hall as a solo performer in 2009. Um, so, yeah, he is one of the big dudes. And uh, sad to see him go, but he left one hell of a, a legacy. Um, funny enough, he almost ended up replacing Brian Jones in the Rolling Stones, believe it or not. Um, the only I believe thing, it. Yeah, the only thing reason it didn't happen was because he ended up sustaining a skull fracture in a car accident that happened right around that time. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, it sucks, but he was awesome. And, uh, he left a lot of great music to listen to, but, uh, yeah. So RIP Jeff Beck, but, uh, fortunately now we got some more, uh, more, more positive news. Uh, Damar Hamlin, uh, from Buffalo Bills, you may remember, uh, he suffered a very rare uh, cardiac condition that knocked him out of commission. Um, uh, he survived, of course. Uh, he's going to be completing rehab, but he has now been discharged from the Buffalo Hospital, and he's going to ho- going to his home to finish his rehabilitation. So, yeah, good news. Mm-hmm. Dude uh, lucked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and he'll get to decide what he does for the rest of his life once he gets mm-hmm. up and going. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's going to be able to fully recover to his shape to go back to football while yeah. he's playing, but who knows? Let's we'll see yeah. how this all goes for him. Yeah. Yeah, they're still not even 100% sure like what happened that caused it. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems likely a hit helped cause it, but still yeah. not. 100% sure on this kind of thing. It's a thing that never really happens. Yeah. Uh, not enough that they can sort of be sure of what's going on. Well, it's so. been it's been recorded and happening in like a bunch of contact sports over the years. I mean, there's been, uh, you know, notes of it happening in like rugby. It's happened once or twice in ice hockey. It's, you yeah, know, it's Beverly. Not, yeah. Literally died on the bench, got revived, and asked to be put back into the game. Yep. Yeah. Um, it is rare, but it is something that happens. Um, yeah. Because um, the, the, it's, it's one of those things that happens with the heart and the heartbeat, man. You know, it goes in a rhythm for a reason. If you end up doing something that'll make that rhythm go out of... We call it arrhythmia for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> um. 
and it's always a risk in contact sports of any kind. So, but um, yeah. So hopefully he'll get he'll be getting better and he'll be back in the game soon. Um, but uh, next up, and now this is one of those stories where it's like, oh, um, the a lawyer for President Joe Biden was in his office and he found a bunch of classified documents, which was like, okay, what the hell? And, of course, when the Biden administration heard this, they were like, yeah, we're going to immediately get a special counsel, lead a DOJ probe, because we want to know how the hell this happened. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, it seems like it was from his time as, uh, or after his time vice as president. vice president. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's like, yeah, this guy was vice president, so. Yeah, and he's not really sure sort of how he has these documents. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it doesn't seem like it's anywhere on the scale of what Trump was doing. Yeah. But the Republicans are going to ride this as far as they can. Yeah. Uh, Because that's what they're doing right now. They don't have anything better to do. Yeah. To uh, ride all the culture, culture wars they can. Yeah. Like, you guys criticize Trump and all this. And it's like, yeah, he took them directly from his time as a president. Directly from the White House with this stuff. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know. We'll see what the nature of this stuff is. Yeah. But yeah, they got a special counsel to lead the DOJ probe. Um, uh, yeah. So we'll see what comes to that. Um, yeah. Speaking of uh, the former president, uh, Alan Weisselberg, who of course was the head of the Trump organization was recently was sentenced this week to five months in prison for his role in the ta- in the Trump organization's tax fraud. Um, yeah. Which I know people are like, man, that seems very low for what he did. Uh, that's also partly because we don't really have a good... We we tend to take white-collar crime much less seriously in this country, or at least our legal system does. Yeah, unless you fuck with rich people's money. Yeah, yeah. in which case they will come down on you like the hammer of God. Yeah. Yeah, and he's only fucking with Trump Organization money. Yeah, which uh, is, you know, theoretical. Yeah. yeah, he's getting five months behind bars for financial crimes he committed mm-hmm. while he was working as chief financial officer there. Yeah, and he's going to Rikers, by the way, just anybody's – Yeah, he's going to Rikers. He's not going to Club Fed. <laughs> yeah, he's also going to serve five years of probation yeah. and pay some $2 million in penalties and back taxes. Uh, yeah, he pleaded guilty to 15 counts in August. Mm-hmm. Including grand larceny, tax fraud, falsifying yeah. business records. Yeah, uh, which is a big deal for that, but that's yeah. probably part of a plea deal for that. Yeah. Also, yeah, that's actually important to mention. He also turned state's evidence, which is probably one of the other reasons why you know the sentence is kind of low. Yeah, but um, they're still sending him somewhere that they'll stick a number two pencil up. As oh yeah, to. totally. <laughs> yeah. He's not going to have a good time at Rikers. <laughs> um, but yeah, and speaking of which, the Trump organization himself was ordered to pay $1.61 million for tax fraud. So, Yeah, $1.61 million uh, in fines and penalties for tax fraud. Mm-hmm. The amount the maximum allowed under state sentencing guidelines is due within 14 days of Friday sentencing. Yep. Uh, so I have to cut that check pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Yeah, the 
Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg said this conviction was consequential. Mm -hmm. First time ever for a criminal conviction of former President Trump's companies. Yeah. Uh, He said he thinks the financial penalty for decades of fraudulent behavior wasn't severe enough. Mm -hmm. uh, Saying that there are laws in the the state need to change in order to capture this type of decade plus systemic and egregious fraud. Oh, yeah. Uh, Because, yeah, this is on a scope that their laws were not designed for. Yeah. Uh, Most laws are not designed for a con man to run a company that uh, pulls this stuff for decades and decades and decades. Yeah. Um, it, you know, they assume most companies are going to do the right thing because it's better to not to. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, then we have uh, this new story. Uh, Elon Musk has broken a Guinness world record for the largest amount of money lost by a person. He has unlocked. Yeah. And last I checked, it was something like over $200 billion. Uh, Let's see. Musk lost between $180 and $200 billion since November 2021. Yep. Largely due to the poor performance of Tesla stocks in recent years, especially as a result of uh, him becoming the owner of Twitter. Mm -hmm. Uh, His fortune went from about $320 billion in uh, 2021 to its current level at about $147 billion. Mm-hmm. Still, Musk remains the second richest person in the world behind Bernard Arnault, the CEO mm-hmm. of luxury good conglomerate LVMH, according to Forbes mm-hmm. numbers. Uh, despite Tesla setting new sales records in 2022, uh, the stock lost 65% of its value in 2022 due to competitors and, you know, uh, the owner, you know, being a jackass for months on end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much so that they're putting a number of their models on sale or at a discount so that they can get under the the price uh, limits for that $7,500 tax credit mm-hmm. for electric vehicles. But they're also getting their lunch eaten by every other company making electric vehicles now. Mm-hmm. And they all have, you know, quality standards on that front versus... Yep. Know, Tesla's being, uh, you know, very prone to fires uh, when crashes happen. And of course, you know, the self-driving ones being like, "Hey, there's a there's a thing I totally shouldn't drive into." Yeah, you know, they think it's burnout. Uh, yeah, the previous record was uh, 58.6 billion set by Japanese tech investor Masayoshi Son in 2000. So, yeah, this is almost three times that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But, uh, oh boy. Um, yeah. So now for some less infuriating news, uh, because this is actually some nice bit of, bit of, uh, fun science news. So NASA's web telescope, it was put out into space fairly recently. Um, and, it just discovered its very first exoplanet, which means it's the first planet. That, it's a planet that is outside of our solar system. Yeah. Yeah, this one's called LHS 475b. Yep. It's nearly the same size as Earth, having 99% of our planet's diameter. Mm-hmm. However, uh, it's several hundred degrees hotter than Earth and completes its orbit around its star in two days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's in the constellation Octans and is 41 light years away which is relatively Mm -hmm. nearby. Uh, Still trying to determine if it has an atmosphere. 
uh, but it's possible that it has none. Mm-hmm. Or one made completely out of carbon dioxide, but one option can be totally eliminated. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they say here, there's some terrestrial-type atmospheres that we can rule out. Uh, it can't have a thick methane-dominated atmosphere, so much of that of Saturn's moon Titan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're scanning the skies using NASA's transiting exoplanet survey satellites when they came across the exoplanet mm-hmm. and used the web's spectrograph technology to further investigate. Mm. Uh, spectrographs transmit light from an object to a spectrum, which can give information about the object's temperature, mass, and chemical composition. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the first results from an Earth-sized rocky planet open the door to many future possibilities for studying rocky planet atmospheres with Webb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. Uh, we'll see what comes of that. Um, and now for some. Well, this is one of those stories that if you've been hearing, unless you're, like, into, like, you know, the tabletop gaming world, uh, yeah, there was some shit going down, because uh, Hasbro, which some of you know uh, owns Wizards of the Coast, they now own the licensing for the Dungeons & Dragons IP, and uh, they were getting ready to overhaul the licensing rules for it that was going to... Uh, well, do a lot of really awful shit. And so at the 11th hour, they decided, yeah, we're we're not going to do that. But yeah, Hazard and Wizards of the Coast walks back their overall of licensing rules for OGL 2.0. Yeah, OGL is the open uh, gaming license that, yeah. you know, all these various D&D podcasts and shows and uh, properties based on that uh have been using to sort of run their business and, you know, essentially prop up Dungeons and Dragons uh, in itself uh, with all that stuff, all that Mm. promotional material, you know, like everything else that happens with, you know, YouTube and Twitch and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, But Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast basically said like, uh, you know, what if we got a cut of all that shit? And uh, so they had this leaked draft of this OGL 2.0. I think it was supposed to be announced officially yesterday on Friday, mm-hmm. uh, but has caused them to delay that as they kind of scramble to figure out a way to uh, iron off the rough edges of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're still working on a positive version of this, but there's still plenty of uh, people doing reporting on this stuff that are, very much saying like they're not that uh, they're not sure how to actually do that. So, but yeah, some of the big issues uh, is that it included clauses that allowed wizards of the coast, the right to use any content published under the OGL for their own means, Mm -hmm. uh, essentially be able to take this nice thing, like say critical role and say like, Hey, let's option this out for a movie or something. You get Mm -hmm. no part in this, Uh, that kind of shit. Uh, a 20 to 25% royalty over $750,000 made mm. and required developers to report their revenue and product releases directly to Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the original OGL kind of set the standard operating procedure for the entire industry as a whole. Mm. And this seeks to basically say, we want all this money and this power instead of you guys having all the creative power in this stuff. And mm. The entire community seemed to clap back and say, you guys need to fuck off with this shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, see, Paizo, the publishers of Pathfinder, said, 
oh, this is a nice idea that you're doing here. How about if we do the opposite of it and create our own open RPG creative license is what they announced. Yeah. Orc. Mm-hmm. Uh, which would be an alternate license to OGL funded by uh, Paizo that would be able to get around all this mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And now they don't want that to become a big thing. Yeah. By the way, for those you don't know, Pathfinder became a thing because uh, they wanted to keep through the, I think it was the third edition rules, but Dungeons the I I can't remember. I don't think it was TSR. I think it was by that point. We, we um, Wizards of the Coast had the IP, but they were moving on to the fourth edition rules, and so they decided it's like we're going to make our own you know RPG with blackjack and hookers and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And that's how Pathfinder came into existence. Isn't fourth edition what everybody hates? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I remember one of those editions was the one that people were like, man, fuck all this. Oh yeah. Now they got to fifth edition, which I think people like again. Yeah. Uh, but these guys, yeah, formed back in 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially is a, a fork off of third edition D and D. Yeah. Uh, doing their own thing. And they put out their whole, their whole, uh, all the same kind of stuff that D and D does, but for their own original property. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, them saying like, Hey, what if we do the thing and do all the good stuff that, People like with the you know the OGL stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you get none of it D and D, especially uh, with people that have what is it Dungeons and Dragons Beyond subscriptions mm-hmm. that a bunch of people started canceling in response to this, which is a good way to hit them where it hurts. Oh yeah, that people just subscribe to that and then forgot it, it, forgot any sort of you know notion of oh maybe I won't subscribe. Until they yeah, get that'll angry. make executives soil themselves. Oh, yeah. That seems like I was a prime reason that they started this back, uh, this uh, uh, walking back this stuff. So, yeah. Good job, Hasbro. Yep. Good job to show how not to do this shit. But, um, yeah. yeah. The one group you don't want to anger is D&D nerds. Yeah. Because they already went to hell and back for their hobby. <laughs> And they're yeah. not afraid to take you out. They suffered all the satanic stuff to get to this yeah. point where it's a big part of pop culture. Yeah. But uh, moving on from there. Yeah. This is a story that a lot of people never thought would happen. But here it is. In-N-Out Burger is looking to expand east as they're opening an eastern office in Tennessee. Yeah. In-N-Out yeah. Burger, for those who don't know, people on the West Coast basically worship In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> Some um, of them. Yeah. There's plenty of people like, no, that shit's overhyped uh, yeah, for what it is. But yeah, sort of famous for their like secret menu stuff, yeah. you know, the animal sauce and all that kind of stuff. Which isn't really secret anymore because they got it on their website. <laughs> but Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the ability to get like double doubles and all this like mm-hmm. these ridiculously sized burgers if you really want to pay for it, uh kind of stuff. Well, um, they, they put a limit on that a few years yeah. ago, but yeah. Of course. Uh but I believe they also like pay their workers fair wages yeah, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, because they're actually like the one like major fast food company that's like still family owned and yeah. controlled by the original founders and their descendants. And yeah, they famously have like a really 
like a really happy employee base that like loves working there and gets like really good pay and benefits. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're opening their Eastern territory office in Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, as well as several Nashville area restaurants by 2026. Yep. Uh, as well as they're looking at their other opportunities to f- further expand out into the, the Eastern half of the United States. Nice. I think they're, Furthest east they had been is Texas. Yep. I think maybe Texas and Colorado, something like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that's uh, that's the whole thing. So enjoy. Yeah, oh, more yeah. competition because we've had, you know, what is it? Culver's is big out here or it's starting to get big. It's from Wisconsin, which means that there's lots of cheese and shit on these things. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, as a result of that, I think they call them butter burgers. So I assume lots of butter as well in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, five guys, uh, which is expensive. So, yeah. 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 That's like the main reason I won't go there very often. Mm-hmm. That, and like, if you order, uh, you know, online or in the app, like when you get there, they'll, you have to wait for them to start cooking the fries. Mm-hmm. Cause they're like, it needs to be fresh. And I'm like, but I want it now. It's mm. the whole reason I did this. Fast food, my ass. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like you know, but they're pretty solid as well. It's just oh yeah, price good food. It's just yeah, it's not yeah. a thing you'll go back often. Yeah, uh, and yeah, that's those are like two of the major ones out there. So yeah, uh, that are throughout the much of the eastern half of the United States. So mm-hmm. yeah, In and Out will be a nice addition to that. Yeah, and I'm I, I'm just hoping that when they do expand, they're able to keep their you know, the, the pay and the benefits. Cause part of the reason they were able to do that was because, you know, they only expanded so much. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But um, anyway, moving on from there uh, this week, John Fogarty finally regained worldwide control of publishing rights to create its clear, clear water revival songs. Um, now this is the, the story about CZR is like one of the most infamous of like, a bunch of people in a band who absolutely despise each other. Um, yeah. But basically the story is this. Uh, John Fogarty and a couple other dudes, and that's basically what it is, because John Fogarty basically did all the real legwork leg work in the band, um, formed this band, created Clearwater Revival. It was very, It was like one of the first sort of examples of what we now call Roots Rock, which is like, Rock music that's very heavily based in, like, you know, bluegrass and folk and country music. Um, They put out a bunch of just absolute bangers of songs in a very short amount of time. They only, they were literally only around, like, in their heyday for, like, a few years. You know, just from forming a band to breaking up in, like, the early 70s. They were, they, for the short amount of time they existed, they were insanely successful. Um, when the Beatles broke up, they were probably the biggest band on the planet. Um, but the thing is, and they put out one last, which was called Mardi Gras, and it is an absolute disaster. And the reason is because John let the other two guys in the band have their own songs. (laughs) Um, John Fogarty wrote all the songs. He sang all of his vocals, even did backing vocals. He played lead guitar. He pretty much produced and managed everything. Um, and basically what happened is that 
the other guys in the band, um, one of them was the rhythm guitarist who was um, his brother, and he like hightailed it seventy. Um, so the other two dudes were uh, the drummer Doug Clifford and Stu Cook, who was the bassist. And nobody really knows exactly what happened because they all sort of tell their own story. John Fogarty says that he's like, guys, he's like all these, he call he literally calls it night of the generals, which is a, a, a reference to a movie that's about Nazi Germany after like Hitler died and they were trying to come up with what the secession was going to be. Um, and essentially, he's like, these guys are like, where, where, I want to, you know, have a song. I want to have my instrument out or on the album, whatever. And the other two guys were like, John's coming to them. He's like, guys, I'm burned out. I need help with this next album. But basically what happened is the album came out and basically they all had like a certain number of um, of songs on the album. Um, John had... Uh, let's see. I think John had like four songs. Stu had three and Doug had three of his own. Um, yeah. Um, and they actually did the lead vocals on it too. And it's very quickly you realize why John Fogarty is the lead singer for that band because Stu Cook sounds awful. So bad that they basically had to put a bunch of reverb on his vocals just so it would sound slightly better. Um, and Doug Clifford was just mediocre, more or less. But basically, these guys hated each other. And because of that, um, the sort of rights for publishing these songs was up in the air for a long time. Until this week when John Fogarty finally regained control of all of them. Yeah. Uh, this deals with uh, Saul Zantz, mm-hmm. who signed Fogarty and Credence to his fantasy records in the mid-60s under a very dracon- draconian contract mm-hmm. uh, that he defended aggressively and litigiously for decades. Uh, so much so that when uh, Fogarty left and made his own song called Vans Can't Dance, uh, that was a spoof on Run Through the Jungle. I uh, he baited him to a, a big lawsuit, essentially, for $144 million uh, that was not successful uh, to say he copied his own song. Uh, but yeah, at this point, Concord, who also owns some stake in this, mm-hmm. uh, still, uh, let's see, retains the CCR Master Recordings, already its catalog, and will continue to administer Fogarty's share of the publishing catalog mm-hmm. for an unspecified limited time. But for the most part, it's a much better place for for him uh, at this point than it has been for the past 50 years at this point. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Oh, boy. Um, but yeah, so that happened. And now for another... What the hell? Uh, Vince McMahon has returned to becoming WWE's chairman of the board after ousting three people. What the hell? Yeah. Uh, he is still the biggest... Uh, shareholder in the company. Mm-hmm. So he kind of gets this kind of power as a result anyway. Yeah. Uh, but forced his way to becoming chair of the board. I got three people removed from it. Uh, I assume people that were more in favor of Stephanie McMahon and Nick Khan mm-hmm. were the co CEOs in his absence. Uh, Stephanie has stepped down mm-hmm. as a result as well. 
And there's fun rumors going around that. Uh, so part of this is he wants to sell the company, uh, get the money back that uh, make you know make plenty of money off of this company, uh, and maybe find somebody that wants to let him run it, essentially like he was before. Uh, and apparently, the rumored buyers for this is the Saudi Arabian uh, investment fund. Yeah. So he would sell the company to the Saudis who can take it private. Mm-hmm. He would run that and be in his own perfect paradise of blood money. Yeah. Which not many people are going to like. No, they uh, are. Especially, you know, shareholders who mm-hmm. uh, have invested in this company for, you know, however much time they have, but mm-hmm. there's already a class action lawsuit about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, about them not being in this process, though he does have the majority of shares, so he wouldn't necessarily need them, but I think it would have to be put to a vote either way mm-hmm. uh, for that kind of thing. But yeah, that's a uh, that's whole ball of, ball of shit, and there's you know a number of uh, wrestlers in their company that do not like their business dealings with the Saudis, mm-hmm. either begrudgingly deal with it because it's part of their contracts, or they get you know leave time to avoid that those shows that they do over there mm-hmm. uh, so it would be interesting to see how that company would change in that in that whole thing especially because you know the Saudis are not exactly huge on uh, a lot of things that you know various wrestlers and creatives want to be able to do mm-hmm. uh, so yeah that's it seems like a very shitty situation for WWE fans and the talent, mm-hmm. and the people working there. So we'll have to see if that's true. If the uproar caused them to delay this, we'll, you know, whatever's going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, next up, and we're now firmly in the entertainment portion of the show. If you haven't figured it out yet, uh, HBO Max is immediately raising its prices one dollar starting February eleventh. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, value proposition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's technically effective now, but it's based on whenever your next billing cycle happens. Uh, so if your your month uh, ends, you know, now you'll get upgraded from fifteen bucks a month to sixteen uh, for uh, the main tier. Uh, as I say here, this price increase of $1 allows us to continue to invest in providing even more culture-defining programming and improving our customer experience for all users so that we can take these shows down if they don't do good enough for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they've been doing for the past few months, at least. Oh, yeah. Uh, in a way that has been baffling, mm-hmm. at the least. Uh, so, yeah, it's... It's shown some of the the fatal flaws in the sort of back catalog mm-hmm. design of a lot of these services that uh, these companies want more money as mm-hmm. a result of this stuff. And like those things aren't things that are going to move a lot of money mm-hmm. to it. But, you know, people will subscribe more to Peacock because of, you know, having the office there and friends and that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also they're not, you know, there's no threat of it leaving, so you don't have mm-hmm. to rush to those uh, those things. Yeah. It's all about the new stuff you're investing in, and while HBO Max is doing some of that, it's not mm-hmm. doing uh, 
as much, especially when they're canceling a lot of their newer stuff too. Mm-hmm. And just straight up removing it from their service. So mm. this is certainly an interesting way of going about getting more money. And it seems like the rumors are also that Warner Brothers Discovery might sell off all of their music catalog, mm-hmm. which is thousands of mu- uh, movie soundtracks and scores and all this kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. uh, that can make them a nice chunk of change to offset debt and that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's a whole ball of fun stuff there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But uh, next up in more entertainment news, especially related to HBO Max, Minx, the, sex, the second season of Minx is being picked up by stars after HBO Max canceled it. Yeah. I believe they're also picking up the first season as well mm-hmm. uh, that they'll be getting at some point here. So good news for people that enjoy that show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, however, Dead End Paranormal Park is going to be canceled at Netflix after two seasons. Yeah. It's a shame. Great show. But uh, they had two great seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, animation's in a bad way. Across to every service. Yeah. Uh, many, there was a lot of investment into animation with uh, a lot of these services, mm-hmm. uh, but it hasn't paid off huge for them. Nope. In a lot of ways, outside of a handful of series out there, but uh, this one's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very much a very progressive show. Yeah. Uh, with one of the main characters being a trans boy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have some gay romance and some other stuff in here that's really well done. So, yeah, definitely check it out. But cool that they got to make this in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and more positive news, Black Panther Wakanda Forever will arrive on Disney Plus on February 1st. So that's good. Yep. If you missed out on it the, in theaters, uh, we would check it out here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, good follow up to the first one and sets them off in a pretty good place for making a third movie or whatever they want to do yeah and uh, then we got another good news which is in first it's in after its creator signed a new overall deal with Disney yeah uh, yeah they are working with uh, the series creator Dan Pobbenmeyer mm-hmm uh, they've ordered, I think, 40 episodes split up into two seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is great to have more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like he, he also had another show that he was working on, Hamster and Gretel. Mm-hmm. It'll also be returning for his second season as part of this new deal. Uh, it's a big overall deal for his company to work with Disney. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's great. The show is really good. Uh, I'm excited to have more of it. Mm-hmm. And next up, we got a couple of trailers here. First, we got a teaser trailer for Hulu's History of the World Part 2. That's right. They're finally making that sequel to Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1. Yeah. He gives a little intro here talking about the original movie mm-hmm. and how this has been, you know, 40 years in the making. Oh, yeah. Uh uh, get a little bit of a look at a lot of the, the talent here as they do a lot of the same kind of stuff that was in the original, which is a lot of historical characters doing lots of weird, funny shit, mm-hmm. uh, having fun along the way, and yeah, having a lot of uh, 
good and cool, you know, uh, comedic actors, you know, JB Smoove, Nick Kroll, a uh, bunch of people. I'm blanking on names for that, but they do show big list of names of various people in this. So, mm. yeah, it's looking cool. It'll be out March 6th on Hulu. A mm. Fortnite event. I don't know what that means. Hmm. Uh, if it's going to be split up into four parts or something like that. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I assume we'll get a, a bit more information on that at some point. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we also got a official trailer for Netflix's Lockwood and Company. Yeah, I think it's Lockwood and Co. Yeah. Uh, British series. I think it's a series um, based on like a young adult series. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, the premise in London, where the most gifted teenage ghost hunters venture nightly into perilous combat with deadly spirits amidst the many corporate adult-run agencies. Mm-hmm. One stands alone, independent of any commercial imperative or adult supervision. A tiny startup run by two teenage boys and a newly arrived supremely psychically gifted girl. Mm-hmm. A renegade trio just destined to unravel a mystery that change the course of history. Mm. Lockwood and Co. Yep. And yeah, I believe this will be starting up, let me see here, January 27th. Yeah. Uh, looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. And finally, last but not least, we got an official trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Yeah, probably the last one you need to watch if you want to uh, avoid any further spoilers with whatever else they might do. Yeah. Uh, this is out pretty soon, February 17th, about a month from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems to show more of uh, Kang the Conqueror's plot in this mm-hmm. uh, as he... He is very much a manipulator of timelines and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. As I imagine, a lot of this trailer is trickery mm-hmm. the way they're showing things, but yeah, uh, seemingly he believes Ant-Man is a big threat to his plans. Mm-hmm. And so they're supposedly going to have a fight to the death. And also, Modok shows up. Because mm-hmm. why not introduce him here? Yep. A very weird character. Oh, yeah. Extremely odd. Um, but yeah, uh, I do believe we got ourselves a show. Uh, yes, we do. So I would like to remind all of our listeners, if you got a question, comment, or something you want us to read on the air, you can get in contact with us at letsweekenders at gmail.com. That's letsweekenders at gmail.com. We got a link for you in the show notes. Also, on top of, uh, Apple Podcasts, you can catch our little bit of scripted shenanigans at Google Play, archive.org, RSS, or pretty much any kind of podcast aggregator you can think of. And if we're not on there, don't worry. Uh, we will just wait a few minutes. We'll be on there pretty soon. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and wind it down for the night here. Thanks once again to my co-host, uh, Chris and Patrick, for joining me on this. Yes. Uh, and um, we don't know what the next week's going to bring, but maybe I'll have a new job. Maybe I won't. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But uh, until then, we'll see you guys next Later.